The Pellicle Podcast is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Rode Microphones. We've used Rode mics to make this podcast since our very first episode. I'm a big fan of the NT1, their vintage voice studio condenser, which we use for our voiceovers and narration. Recently, I've also turned to their reporter handheld mic, which is perfect for capturing interviews in the field. This introduction is being recorded using their best-selling NT-USB Mini, plus a little EQ and compression. It's a brilliant little USB mic that's perfect for improving your audio, especially your video calls. You just stick it on your desk, plug in your headphones, and sound more like you're in a studio. The NT-USB Mini is available now, and it's just £99 RRP. Go check it out at Rode.com. Thanks again to Rode, and now, it's on with the show. Now then, welcome to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm Matthew Curtis. How are you doing? I know the last few podcasts, the two most recent ones, we've sort of started by talking about what's happening out there and it's it's still it's still pretty awful really, isn't it? I mean, you might hear the sound of rain faintly in the background of Storm Christoph rapping against my window. It's pretty damp out there and, you know, things are still not great. We still can't go to the pub. It's all very unsettling, so let's not dwell on it. Let's sit with it, acknowledge it's happening, but um, I'm going to try and talk about something a bit more light-hearted as we, as we set the scene for this episode, which is going to be about cider. Uh, and I'm really excited about properly digging into cider on this podcast for the first time. So what happened to me recently? Well, I fell down the fucking stairs. Like genuinely, like I, t- I had a nasty fall down the stairs, I got these really nice new wool socks from my uh, my family in New Zealand. So my partner Diane is from New Zealand originally, and her family sent us some lovely thick wool New Zealand wool socks. And I was wearing these around the house. I was <laughs> I was pretty stressed out and running around because you know we're all pretty stressed out and running around in safely at a safe distance in our own homes. But um, I ran up the stairs to get something without thinking. I I ran down the stairs as well and my foot hit the wooden step and just slid up in the air. My arse and hip hit the uh, the step. I tried to to stop myself. I tried I reached out with my right arm, my good arm to grab the banister and um did nothing but strain it very badly and then then came tumbling down the steps at a pace. And luckily my partner was, was also home and got me onto the sofa, but I couldn't lift my arm up and I was in a lot of pain. After a couple of hours on the couch, I just fell asleep and I woke up from that sleep three hours later and I still couldn't lift my arm, but I could wriggle my fingers and I could grip properly. So I didn't think I'd done any serious damage, but I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. I thought I might have torn a rotator cuff or something like that. And I was petrified with the thought that I would have to go to to A&E to, to get it looked at, to get a scan because the virus is out there and the, and the hospitals are, are struggling. You read on the news every day about this. The thought of me being an idiot and falling down the stairs, going and, and adding to that, exacerbating that, I wasn't pleased with myself. But I thought I'd leave it for a few days, a bit longer than I normally would. And if it didn't get any better, I would go in because, because you should still be using 
the NHS if you're not well. But thankfully, after a couple of days, the swelling went down and the mobility returned. It was very sore and and it's not too serious. The moral of the story is um, don't fall down the stairs. I'm sure lots of people are falling down the stairs at homes in the pandemic and solidarity with all all of those people uh, who've had a similar experience. So that's one thing that's been happening with me. The other thing that's been happening with me is I've been doing lots of writing. I'm working on an article for Pellicle I'm very excited about. So excited that I might do a whole episode about it. I'm writing a profile of a brewery in Sheffield called St. Mars of the Desert. And uh, Dan and Martha there, they're really well known in the US because they had a brewery based in Boston called Pretty Things that was very loved by the local beer community. But they, they moved to the UK and they started a brand new brewery called St. Mars of the Desert. And they make really fantastic beers. They brew what they want, really. They do some saisons, they do some IPAs, they do some lagers. It's all pretty fantastic. And they're lovely people. And I actually spent a day with them in January 2020, just at the brewery, taking photos, getting in the way, asking questions to start writing a profile on them. And it's nearly finished. Uh, I say it's nearly finished. The writing part of it is is still largely to be done, but the research part is is finished. I've spoken to about 20 people. I've done interviews. I've got my photos all edited and ready. I just need to put it in order. After I finish recording this episode, I'm hoping to have a good crack at that. But hopefully that'll be with you soon. And I'm also, I'm writing a book at the moment. It's called Modern British Beer and it's for camera books. So camera, the campaign for real ale, have a publishing wing and I'm writing a book for them. So Modern British Beer, which will be out later this year. Again, that is, it's largely in the research part, which most of writing for me is a process of, of researching the topic. And well, a lot of thinking, a lot of contemplation, a lot of sat thinking, the more and more time I am a writer, I've been a professional full-time writer for five years now. The longer I do it, the more I realize that actually a lot of the work is ruminating and it doesn't feel very productive or useful and there's nothing to show for it really. But I guess it's all part of the process. It's part of my process anyway. So it is what it is. Uh, So yeah, I'm keeping busy despite what's happening out there and I'm keeping dry from from Storm Christoph, which has got its moist grip over Manchester at the moment. And before we continue, I want to thank everyone who's been tuning into the podcast recently. I've had some really lovely feedback since I switched up the format a couple of episodes ago. Listenership has doubled in these past two episodes, and that's really great and has given me lots of confidence to continue doing episodes like this, like the one you're listening to now, and I'll keep doing that. I wanted to start bringing some interviews in, and I'm going to do that, but I want to do the interviews in person I've invested in a new little setup, some new microphones and headphones, so that whenever I am out and about visiting stuff, I have a portable, good quality, easy to use podcast rig. And once I start traveling again, I will always record an an interview to hopefully use on this podcast. There's lots of people doing great interviews over things like Zoom and other apps, but I really want to do them in person. So I'm going to hold off until I can do that. So until then, you're stuck with me just talking at you. And I hope you enjoy that. And I'll just be quick and mention our Patreon supporters. I won't go into too much detail this episode because you don't need the hard sell rammed down your throat all the time. But thank you to our Patreon supporters who do donate a little bit of money or a lot of money every month and who've signed up at patreon.com forward slash Pellicle Mag. It keeps the whole Pellicle website and podcast going and it keeps it free for everyone. So feel under no obligation to join up and support if you can't. But if you can, it'd be great if you did, because it helps us keep going. Cheers. 
Anyway, let's get on and get straight into today's topic. I won't keep you waiting any longer. Now, I've spoken to a few people about this episode or the intention to record this episode in the world of cider. And I've kind of maybe falsely bigged myself up as going to do a bit of cage rattling. People will definitely disagree with some of this and shake their head at what I'm saying. But hopefully other people will agree. What I need to establish is very important. This is a bit like episode 18. I'm going to be quite opinionated and express some views on cider that I have over the next hour or so. What this is, is me attempting to work shit out. Like, I have an idea and a feeling, and the way this podcast works is I'm going to... I've got a question in my head, which is, does cider still have an image problem? What's the deal with the cider community? So I've got that in my head, and I'm going to be exploring that question via the lens of my cider journey and my cider experience over the last five years and try and work out if something I wrote about five years ago is still true and where we've come since then. So five years ago, uh, well, four and a half years ago, in October 2016, I wrote my first ever article on cider and it was a profile or it was intended to be a profile of a chap called James Galbraith, who is a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who had launched a cider brand in the UK called Cider Later Peak. And the reason I decided to start writing about cider was twofold. Firstly, because I was interested in cider. That's the obvious one. But secondly, I'd gone freelance as, as a beer writer full time about six months previously. And it soon dawned on me that I would need to branch out a little from beer if I was going to have a sustainable career. And I figured seeing as I became a beer writer because of my blog, Total Ales, I would use that website, totalales.co.uk, to start exploring the ideas I have about cider and try and build a similar, if not smaller, but similar platform as a beer writer. And you know what? I have been writing about cider since then, and I've written about cider for several magazines, including Ferment Magazine and Cameras beer magazine and also we published Pellicle which has cider as a big focus on pellicalemag.com where we've commissioned lots of profiles of some amazing cider makers to really help our readers establish in their minds a scene but that's not been without its own challenges which I'll talk about later on. Let's rewind to October 2016 or just before then when, well, several months before then when I'd just gone freelance and James Galbraith reached out to me about his cider project, Later Peak. Later Peak was really interesting. It, It happened a couple of years before the cider boom we're seeing now in terms of artisanal, natural, fine cider, whatever you want to call it. He... He started doing something similar to that, but slightly ahead of the curve, maybe to his detriment. Let's explore that. He reached out to me and said, I would love to meet you and pour you some cider and see what you think. So I headed down to a pub in Clerkenwell in London and met James and he had these bottles on the table. He was sat at these four 750ml clear glass corked and caged 
champagne style, wine style bottles with labels that look like craft beer labels. And when I say craft beer, I mean, they look like a mixed firm Saison, a, a sort of a Burning Sky or a Wild Beer Co. style modern label. And they said Cider Later Peak, and they all had their own different style. And he opened these with a pop and poured me these really spritzy, interesting, delicious ciders, which were from Normandy in the north of France. Now, what he'd done is James had not a cidery of his own, but on his travels in France, he had discovered a cider maker making these really delicious ciders, very traditional local French cider maker. And he had bought some cider off him and brought it to the UK and rebranded it with his permission to launch this brand, Later Peak. His idea was to bring a product to market that would resonate with a more modern drinker, the drinker that was drinking craft beer or natural wine. I guess even in 2016, maybe natural wine was, that was also still only just starting to build up steam, certainly here in the UK specifically. So we tasted through these ciders and they were, they were really delicious and it, you know, it sparked something in my mind. They weren't the first fine ciders I'd ever had. Oliver's was probably the one that was just in my mind as like something I, I loved. I'd had stuff like Pilton, but I, I definitely wasn't where I am now with cider as someone who, who writes about it professionally and enjoys it immensely. I was an outsider, but an outsider that loved interesting booze and was curious. So I decided to write a profile on James and what he was doing. The initial premise was very simple, was just to profile James and showcase what he was doing because I thought it was interesting, but I was self-publishing. So as you do when you self-publish is you come up with an angle and you start to explore the idea as you write the article. And if you've read my stuff for a few years, you'll know that I kind of like to get a bit stuck in. And by that, I mean, I wasn't afraid to put myself out there and showcase my opinion. And as I wrote the article, the opinion developed and my opinion was that Cider had an image problem and James was an example of turning that image problem on its head. What I'm going to do now before I go any further is I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from that article and see what you think. I'm not going to read you the whole article because it's quite long, but you can go to the show notes and I'll put a link in there so you can see it. So here's an excerpt from the article I did on James and Later Peak. Currently, for me at least, the UK cider market seems to be firmly divided into two separate categories. The first is the fizzy, ubiquitous mass-market cider that dominates this sector. Products such as Strongbow and Copperberg are a mainstay in this category. But brands that have arrived more recently, such as Orchard Pig, fall on this side of the fence for me too. On the other hand, you have, for want of a better term, real cider. These are the often cloudy, sometimes strong ciders championed by camera, which are usually seen at beer festivals and in pubs, either on hand pull or poured directly from a plastic bladder inside a cardboard box. From my perspective, the public tends to treat these ciders with caution, often referring to them affectionately as scrumpy. They are only really appreciated by hardcore cider enthusiasts. These ciders are often strong and have a reputation for getting you very drunk and then causing a ferocious hangover. However, some of the ciders in this category are anything but. 
They are some of the most elegant and delicious ciders you'll try, in fact. Ciders from the likes of Tom Oliver, a man with such a reputation that he pretty much inspired the cider revolution happening in the US, almost single-handedly. However, when faced with an Oliver's cider at the bar, it does little to distinguish itself from others that could quite well be rocket fuel, masquerading as a tasty beverage. Simply put, cider this good deserves better. There needs to be more British cider that takes itself seriously in terms of both flavour and the way it presents itself. By carving out space in the market this way, craft beer managed to separate itself from the mass market lagers and traditional real ales by both tasting and looking different. I'm surprised that cider hasn't carved a similar niche yet. So then the article goes into a bit more of the profile, but I'm going to read a paragraph of the conclusion. And remember, this was in October 2016. It feels like we're only two or three great brands away from cider taking its place alongside craft beer. The products are already there. They can just do a much better job at marketing themselves than, say, sticking it in a plastic bladder inside a cardboard box. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. Traditional cider and the way it's presented will always have its place, just like Cascale. What I'm saying is that the consumer simply deserves that extra choice. So first things first, my opinion on beer itself has changed quite a bit since then. I think something that's important to talk about is how I am strong of opinion. I talked about in in episode 18 that I can be tagged as being an emotional person and I prefer the term sincere. I am a very sincere person. Recently on an online discussion in a beer forum, I was told that as a beer writer, it's my job to report in a balanced way and not take sides. But that's journalism. And sometimes in the past, I've called myself a beer journalist and I have done reporting in a news sense as part of my job. But when I'm writing for myself, I'm a writer, not a journalist. And being a writer is about taking a position. And my position comes from a place of sincerity. And I can get quite invested in that sincerity, shall we say. What I've learned over the years is that you need to hold the opinions you form through that sincerity very loosely and be ready to change your mind. If you are wrong about something, you take ownership of that mistake. You apologize, you take action and you atone for that mistake. You move on. A great example of this is, is talking about cast beer and real ale. I used to argue with this this blogger and writer, Peter Alexander, who's known on Twitter as Tandleman, and we used to have arguments about Cascale on Twitter. I was almost always universally wrong. I every time. What he doesn't know about Cascale isn't worth knowing. And I've got to know Peter very well. He's a good friend of mine now. And we go drinking together. When we were allowed before the pandemic, we would go drinking together and have a good laugh about it and and I have learned so much from him and I was only able to learn from him because I I let go of my strong opinions and I apologized and I learned and I moved on. And so my opinion on some of the stuff I was saying about craft beer and cascale has changed because I see craft beer and real ale largely as the same thing. There are lots of different opinions and attitudes within those sectors, but they come from a very similar place. And I've learned that about cider and I'm going to talk about that a bit later on, but I want to talk about what happened after I published that article. 
when you hit publish, the article ceases to be yours. It becomes everyone's and you are at the mercy of everyone once it's out there. It was my first piece on Cider. And instead of choosing to just write a nice profile and say, here's someone doing something interesting, I decided to get stuck in. A lot of people in the cider community didn't like that. And I experienced something that I didn't experience when I started writing about beer. I received messages, some public via Twitter and some in the comments on that post. That you'll, If you do visit it, you can see some of the comments there. And I got a lot of emails, some of them from, from people I considered good friends. And I was told, you, you have no right to be writing about cider. You, you have no skin in this game. You shouldn't be saying this. I upset people. And that gave me pause to think about what I'd said and, and, you know, ask myself, am I wrong? One thing I will admit that is the presentation of the argument and some of the points I made. I've definitely moved on since then. But I think the overriding point that I was making that Cider had an image problem was, was correct. I lost conviction because I wasn't being backed up. That is until I got an email from Tom Oliver saying, I agree. Good work. Keep it up. Very simple. And that was it. That was the galvanizing message. That was Tom Oliver, the Don of Cider, I call him. He's a legend, a kindred spirit. We're both sound engineers before we were drinks professionals. He still is a sound engineer. He has worked with the likes of the Proclaimers, television, everything but the girl. He literally has gold records hanging on his wall in his house. I was in a band called Brontosaurus Chorus. I don't have any gold records, but I am a qualified sound engineer. I have a degree in it, but not, not the life and road experience of Tom. Still, doesn't change the fact he feels like something of a, of a kindred spirit in this regard. Anyway, I got this email and I replied to it. And he said that when, when I can, I need to go and visit him in Oaklepichard in Herefordshire, where he makes cider. And I said, as soon as I can, I will. It would be 11 months after I published that before I would see Tom in person and it was at the, the 2017 Beavertown Extravaganza. So we fast forwarded to, to 2017. It's September. Beavertown's still a, an independent brewery who are about to put on, at the time, one of the most influential and important beer festivals that sadly doesn't ha- have the, the cultural weight it did when it happened because of Beavertown selling nearly half the, the stake in its business to Heineken. That's definitely another podcast episode. Let's try not to dwell on that, but move on. The fact is that Tom Oliver was pouring cider there. He was the only cider maker who, who was invited. And his stand, you know, there's a hundred odd breweries there, some of the most exciting breweries in the world. His stand was next door, literally next to Other Half Brewing from New York City, who I think this was the first ever time Other Half had poured beer in the UK at a festival. And the line was hundred strong until they ran out of beer every day. And next to it was Tom, and I think he was with Felix Nash, who is uh, the owner of the Fine Cider Company, a distribution company who has more influence than, than a lot of people in cider give him credit for, because he put cider in some very important places, some great restaurants in London like Lyle's in Shoreditch and Marksman Public House in Hackney. Tom and Felix were there pouring some amazing Oliver cider. But no one was going to the bar and drinking it. Maybe some of the brewers who, you know, knew what it was. I mean, it was Beavertown who invited Tom there because they wanted the cider there. But the beer audience wasn't drinking it. If you listen to Johnny, my co-founder of Pellicle, he was interviewed recently on a podcast called Neutral Cider Hotel. 
Johnny worked for Beavertown at the time, so he can tell you a bit more about that experience. But it's definitely something that inspired our direction at Pellicle. But Tom was literally walking up this line for other half, people waiting impatiently for hazy, hoppy beer, giving them glasses of, of vintage cider. And, you know, not all of them would have liked it, but he was just doing the work. And it's very representative of Tom and his uh, open approach to it. But after that festival, literally the day after that festival, myself and I worked for a website called Good Beer Hunting at the time. And people who've been listening to podcasts for a few years will know I did some, some podcasts for them as well as writing. And I went to, to Herefordshire to visit Tom with the Good Beer Hunting founders, Michael Kaiser and Hilary Schuster. So we got the train over to, to Herefordshire and Tom picked us up at the train station and we spent a couple of days there. You know, we visited orchards. I think the first orchard we went to, it was an old, formerly a Bulmers orchard. So Bulmers, uh, who make Strongbow, who are owned by Heineken now. There was a Dabinet orchard and I got to hold a ripe Dabinet in my hand. And, you know, among these trees that were rife with mistletoe, which is a parasite that lives on apple trees and seeing all this fruit and the smell and it was a nice day the soil was damp and I held this tiny little apple in my hands that I had not really seen a cider apple before and it was small and it was much juicier than a than an eating apple we spent the next couple of days visiting not just apple orchards but peri orchards everything from young trees to some very old trees Tom even took us to the copy peri tree which is one of the only ones, if not the only one, left in the country. Hundreds of years old, this tree that bears a unique sort of peri pear. And I remember that first night, we told tales, we got very drunk, we had a lovely time. And then we went to bed, and I remember getting into this little single bed in a spare room, and lying, staring at the ceiling, just going, oh, I'm in Tom Oliver's house. I was so excited, I was like a kid at Christmas. Although I'd started drinking and thinking and writing about cider this was really my pivotal cider moment being a freelance writer i was able to do this in my in my work time really this this was work but those few days were what made me understand cider and gave context to cider there's a good chance that if i hadn't have stuck my neck out and wrote that article about james gilbraith that i might not have ended up there i might have later on but there you are and I, and I, you know, I, I knew some people. So I knew Susanna Forbes, who would later start Little Pomona with her husband, James. We were both on the committee for the British Guild of Beer Writers, something I'm doing again now because I'm very passionate about supporting beer writing. But Susanna was like trying to do her bit for cider then on deaf ears, unfortunately. But she was always so keen to talk to me about cider and, and make sure that it was something that I was thinking about. And I got to meet people like Gabe Cook, the ciderologist, and other cider enthusiasts, and meet other people in beer who were like me going, oh, there's something to this cider. And we were always looking for a hook. We were looking for the hook where we could hang this new fine cider, this new exciting thing. And it was like, it's a bit like mixed fermentation beer. It's like Burning Sky Saisons, you know. It doesn't taste anything like them. It t- it's just not beer, it's cider. And it should be said, actually, Tom did some great work. You know, he, he started working with Mills Brewing, which is one of the most exciting, important little brewing projects in the country. Read the, the article on 
pelicalmag.com by Lily Waite about Mills because that features Tom and the work he does with them. He'd also made ciders with people like Brew by Numbers and other brewers. Tom knew that craft beer drinkers were, were a cider audience that he wanted to get into. And Felix Nash at the Fine Cider Company knew that natural wine drinkers were also people who should be drinking delicious cider. And over the next few years, we saw, and we're at this place now, where what I asked for, two or three or a handful of cider brands come through who changed the game a little bit. And you've seen that with Little Pomona and Wilding and Find and Foster and, and people like that. And that's helped people like Martin Berkeley at Pilton, who had been going for a few years already. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, this is good. And I'm going to make some really delicious looking bottles that you're going to desperately want to get hold of. And, you know, you had Ross on Y, Mike Johnson. I don't give him enough credit for, for the amazing cider he made, but it was when his son Albert went back and helped him rebrand and started helping him get out there and talk about it that things really kicked up a notch and they won the BBC Food and Farming Award. You know, they got people's attention, demonstrating the importance of reaching out to people and connecting with them. And I think, you know, something that cider... Momentarily, I'm going to talk about the fact that there's been good cider around for ages, but... You had to go there and get it, and that place where it was maybe wasn't appealing to to so many people. Let's come back to that article, because I drew this sort of line in the sand, and on one end, there was the mass-produced cider. So if you consider Strongbow, it's... You know, it's all made from apples, but Strongbow is made from apples that are turned into a concentrate, which is then back sweetened and watered down and carbonated. It's a processed product. It's not a natural product. It's the best selling cider in the UK. Loads of people love it. You know, as I've said with, you know, this is a, a position of mine that has changed. It's great that people love it and enjoy it. And you shouldn't yuck people's yum. I used to be a bit of an evangelist with craft beer saying, you must drink this instead of drinking that fizzy piss. And now I'm like, actually, no. Firstly, it's not fizzy piss, and if you like it, that's great, and I, I'll leave you alone, you know. I've got this beer over here, and if you ever want to try it, like just give us a shout, you know. So we have this at one end, we have this mass-produced cider, and we'll, in that we'll put things like Copperberg and Recordelig. Recordelig? Recordelig? This is fruited cider. It's not really cider. It's essentially an alcopop, but it's, it calls itself cider. And then I, I mentioned Orchard Pig in that piece I did. I haven't seen that around for ages. But, you know, a little bit more rustic, but still not like traditional British cider. You're talking fizzy 5% cider that you drink by the pint. Anyway, way at the other scale, you've got traditional cider. And so I had this image of traditional cider. When I was writing that article in 2016, the image of traditional cider I had was of plastic flagons or glass, if it was the good stuff that you bought at like National Trust gift shops or farm shops along the motorway when you were driving through Dorset or Devon or, you know, or Cornwall. You know the stuff. And it was like 8% and it was called like Old Bessie. Like I've made that up. If there is a cider out there called Old Bessie and it's really good, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but, you know, it played into that West Country, hello, my lover stereotype, for better or worse. And it's this rocket fuel and... Some of that stuff isn't very good. The cider industry needs to have a big conversation about acetic acid. That's not what this episode is about. But some of it buried in that traditional cider was 
what we now call, well, what do we call it? Fine cider, natural cider, craft cider, whatever you want to call it. I just call it cider. It's called cider with an I. And what has happened is that some people in that have repositioned themselves. So not along that line, if you go above the line and it's a flat circle without getting too um, quantum physics, just like craft beer did over the last two or three decades, this new wave of cider made itself look and feel different so as to differentiate itself from both. This is a new thing. And it has done so very successfully in a very small way. It feels like when you talk about it and you read about it online that, it's, that this is a big thing that's happening. And it is, but it's actually, it's not as popular as beer. But it had, those two or three brands plus have come out and it's helped some of the more traditional brands come out. And more people are talking about cider. Like, I don't know many beer writers that in my group of friends, we're all talking about cider because it's amazing and we're fascinated by it. You know, we're fermentation enthusiasts and we want to drink these things and tell people about them. And there's sort of like this sort of exchange of people inside her and people who are writing about it who are like, yeah, let's help elevate and express our, our feeling for this and then more people will enjoy it. And so this has emerged from that just as I had, had hoped four and a half years ago. But I'm looking at it now and I think there's a few things that still aren't being talked about. So as in my journey inside her, well, a really important part of my journey is I started Pellicle, which is a website that publishes articles about cider. And there was an article we published about a cider maker. In fact, let's not be subtle here. It was about Little Pomona. There's a profile by Nikki Pete, and it's brilliant. It's on the site. Go read it. I shared that in a Facebook group that was um, rooted in traditional cider. Dropping that link in that group was like putting a scalpel to a belly and cutting into the the underside of it, and something I didn't know was there and had not acknowledged. And I got into some arguments, because as I've mentioned earlier, I am pretty sincere. And also, if I publish something on Pellicle, I'm immediately defensive of it, because I've paid money for it, and I'm invested in it financially and emotionally. But people were complaining that so much of the attention in cider is just on this small new wave and that the people who've been there 20 30 years have just been forgotten about and I was very defensive first up and got in these arguments and then I went to my chamber of contemplation and I thought about it and I sat with it and maybe I was wrong we have at Pellicle really only focused largely on on this new wave quite deliberately so with intent because we feel like this is what is pushing the change in cider. We haven't spent long enough investing in where it came from. I mean, we have. We've had, we've had Mike Johnson and Martin Berkeley on there. And we've had Roger Wilkins, a mystical cider legend. Maybe doesn't make the best cider in the world in, terms of, in a technical way, but in terms of the emotion and the context of Roger Wilkins as a cider maker. He's hugely, hugely important and one of the last people of a dying tradition that, that will not survive, unfortunately. That's, it's, you know, he is the end of the line, very sadly, for rustic farmhouse cider making in that fashion. But, yeah, we, maybe we hadn't considered this more traditional arm with the humility that we should have. 
And I got I started thinking about my approach to beer in the early days and how I was quite anti camera. You know, the campaign for real ale. I gave them stick, I called them dinosaurs, I called bitter, twiggy rubbish. And almost universally I was wrong every time I said this. You know? I love traditional beer. I, I see traditional British beer as in a completely different light these days. I see cask bitter in the same way as I see Munich Hellers or Czech Pilsner or West Coast IPA in San Diego. It's a cultural touchstone, just like traditional British cider. What this new wave of cider is, is it, it is an update of traditional British cider, just as craft beer is an update of all traditional brewing. American craft beer, the West Coast IPA, is literally a descendant of traditional colonial era British brewing. Look at porter. People are still making stouts and porters and they are inspired by recipes from the 19th or the 18th century. This is significant stuff and I have a completely different perspective on that. And I worry that cider is in a position that craft beer was a few years ago where it could make the same mistake. So the mistake craft beer made, and I was one of the people making this mistake, was that we saw what happened in the United States. We looked at the US and we saw that they were rebelling against the fizzy yellow piss, the Budweiser's and and Miller Lights and whatnots of the world, and they were making beers with flavour. And that was the big thing. And then eventually you had brands come out in the 90s like Stone who made that their marketing point and their call to arms. And Stone weren't alone in this, but they were certainly the most prominent. And that attitude came over to the UK. So if you think about breweries that started between 2007 and 2010, there's two very significant breweries. You've got the Colonel, who started in 2009 who are still pretty much exactly the same, just with a bit more experience, but just doing things the way they've always done them. And Brewdog, who are now, they make more beer in the UK than any other brewery in the UK, and they've got breweries in America and Australia and Berlin and all over. And Brewdog adopted this anti-establishment stance, except instead of targeting, well, yeah, Brewdog did target the mass market lagers which are different here. They were the Stella Artois and the Cronenbergs and then the Carlings. Carling is still the best-selling beer in the UK. But they didn't stop there. They also turned their focus on camera and Twiggy Bitter. And I remember having so many conversations online about Twiggy Bitter and how it was days were numbered, it was over, and how those traditional beers aren't great. The breweries are too big, they're not able to effectively monitor the quality and cellar that's you know you can only do so much in the brewing aspect of cask beer and then it's unleashed into the world and you're at the mercy of time and the cellar and the people involved in that and a lot of these traditional breweries got very big which makes it more difficult to monitor that and a lot of these breweries became accountant run rather than brewer run and so when it's more about margin than it is about quality that's when quality starts to slip anyway i digress so what happened was that we had a new wave of breweries that turned their back on traditional British brewing because they were so focused on 
on changing the game. And so you had people like Brewdog, the obvious one, who stopped making cask beer. And then new breweries like Beavertown and Camden Town, who just made keg beer. And although maybe didn't have quite the same rhetoric as Brewdog, it definitely came from the same place. It was about displacement and changing beer in the UK. And what has happened is that beer in the UK has changed forever. I'm writing a book about it, Modern British Beer. I might have mentioned it. And I think we're in a good place because we're a lot more respectful now of that tradition. But we could have got here in a much more mature way and be much more respectful to these big brewers. The problem is, if you listen to episode 18, some of those big traditional brewers want small brewers to pay more taxes, and that's very bad, and that's going to happen. And I will revisit this after it. I've read this 78-page document the government have published with all their data, and I don't think there's, uh, there's any way back from this for small breweries. Where does cider come into this? So what we had with craft beer is they kind of like rebelled against the traditionalists. And they didn't embrace them. These people who'd been doing it for 50 years, 100 years. Jesus, like all this knowledge and experience, you literally created a point of difference and say, we're different. We don't need you. We're craft beer. You're real ale. And it confused people and it created animosity. It caused me to have arguments on Twitter with Peter Alexander unnecessarily because we thought we were taking positions. Like I say, I was wrong. And now I worry that cider... Now I've cut into this underbelly and seen the animosity that exists and it's nasty, you know. People are really unhappy that that a certain group of people have taken modern cider and done really well with it when they've been talking about it for years. There's a real danger of this new wave not respectfully embracing that tradition. If it's a case of quality, then those conversations need to be had, that education needs to be implemented. But there are a lot of cider makers in this country. You might be listening to this now and you're like, well, Pellicle doesn't care about me. You only care about this new wave. To which I would reply to you, we don't know about you. Like, my email is Matthew with two T's at PellicleMag.com. I'm not fucking psychic. Please talk to me. We're genuinely interested. So are other people. Let's go back to me writing that article. And you might have been one of the disgruntled people who read it. Imagine if you'd done what Tom Oliver did and said, come and visit me. Like, I, I want to entertain your opinion and, and discuss it with you in a progressive manner. Imagine if you'd done that. It might have been you that was the first ever cider article on Pellicle. Not that we're particularly influential in the world of cider, but we are a magazine that writes about cider and there aren't very many of them. And there's not going to be loads more in the future. It's, it's a very niche topic. But I worry that... This new wave, by failing to repair that damage now and embrace everyone, you could make the same mistakes that beer made by eschewing tradition. And that'll just slow you down by about 10 years. Maybe a bit less because cider's smaller. But some of that damage will never be healed. There are people who love real ale who still have this opinion on craft beer. You know, the crafties, they just like murky, faulty beer, which is not accurate. But craft beer did little, it fought against it instead of having those discussions, I was culpable in that. And I know now with hindsight that I was, I was wrong to do so. 
But let's look at that group, that traditionalists, and and think about, you know, I've had discussions with a couple of people about how they've been doing this for, for 20 years through camera. So they they used beer as leverage. You know, camera putting on beer festivals all over the country, even before the pandemic, camera beer festivals, you know, they are that stereotypical thing you think about with the Morris dancers and, and the marquees and the bad hot dogs. And they might be really good hot dogs. You know, that's being very judgmental of the quality of hot dogs at specific camera beer festivals. But cider was at these festivals. Their argument to me was that it was always there. But I went to those festivals and I didn't feel particularly welcome. And I, I, I didn't know what I was ordering. I mean, you go to a beer festival to drink beer. And there's the cider tent, and it's a load of cardboard boxes. Like, come and try the cider. We've got medium, we've got medium dry, we, you know. It comes back to this image problem, and I'm not saying that they should have been pouring from 750 milliliter wine bottles or bagging boxes, but if there was an idea that this was an accessible way of, of learning and engaging with cider at the time, as an outsider from then, it did not feel like it. And what the new wave have done is create a bridge of accessibility for new cider drinkers. What I'm saying to the new cider drinkers is that now you've stepped over this bridge and you're drinking your your wine bottle of cider is that there is this whole other world of traditional cider and back in box cider is cool. Like if St. John restaurant, (laughs) I talk about them a lot, can sell bag in box wine off their website, fine wine off their website and people can go, yeah, I'm going to drink my box wine, drink your box cider. But that image problem is still haunting cider. I have a memory of going into certain a certain chain of craft beer bars in London who were importing some of the most exciting and interesting beers in the world. I remember they were pouring bottles of McKellar, you know, champagne-style bottles of McKellar and selling them for 25 quid, which for me, eight, nine years ago, that was, that was ridiculous. And then they had a cider on called Pheasant Plucker. Think about it. I mean, if you're going in and you want a pint of cider with your mates, oh, pheasant plucker. But think about the barrier that creates. You know, people I've argued with about modern cider not embracing traditional cider. It's like, well, you try to get into beer with pheasant plucker, and I'm sure it sold well because it was the only cider on tap. That has to change. That is changing. So both sides need to look at each other and accept that things are, are moving on. The point I'm really trying to make here is that it's the new wave need to make sure they are engaging with the people who've been doing it for 20 or 30 years, not just one or two people. And I'm saying this to myself as one of those people inside right now. Let's talk about that middle ground, that new wave of cider. So there's a movement in that new wave of cider called Cider is Wine. And I want to talk about introducing people to, to cider for the first time. So cider is made pretty much in exactly the same way as wine. It's not brewed like beer. It's an agricultural product like beer, but beer is more tied to the process of brewing and the stainless steel rather than the the agriculture, the growing of hops and barley. I'm trying to change that. Beer is something that is grown in the ground. It's very easy to get a tangible sense of the agriculture of cider because it's grown on trees and then pressed and fermented. And that's just the same as as wine. And with the new wave of cider, you know, there's a lot of people doing a great job of talking about the orchards and the people making orchard-based ciders. And even the the urban cider makers, 
such as hawks as a big example or duck chicken as a smaller example are talking about where they're getting their apples from and you know where the fruit is being grown there's a very obvious sense to almost every cider drinker that that cider is made from apples and apples are grown on trees but there's a movement within fine cider called cider is wine and i want to talk about that as an example of how the new middle on the flat circle that's emerged are perhaps not paying the respect to the traditional roots of cider in the way they could. Or, and this is the flip side, it's also not paying the respect to the best-selling cider in the country, the mass-produced stuff, because most people in the country think that cider is it comes in cans and you buy it in the supermarket. So I've got some cider in the house at the moment from Nightingales in Kent, and I've championed Nightingales quite a lot recently because I really like their cider. It's orchard-based cider. Sam Nightingale, the cider maker there, it's a family-owned business, and he makes very accessible ciders. Now, the fruit in the southeast of England is eating apples. It's this sweeter, less tannic, less acidic flavour in the fruit, as opposed to the cider apples of the three counties in the West Country. I talked about how I held my first Dabinet, which is an apple variety, when I visited Tom Oliver, and these are are very different. They're much more acidic. Well, there's different varieties. There's bitter sweets, bitter sharps, sweets, sharps, and they have very complex flavors. Let's talk about Fox Whelp as an example. I love. It's incredibly, incredibly acidic. It has that sort of lambic acidity, like makes your teeth tingle. I love it because I love acidic flavors. But you wouldn't grow an apple like Fox Whelp. You wouldn't see that from a southeastern, a Kentish or Sussex-based cider maker. And Nightingales makes these very accessible ciders, but they are all juice and they are very good. Discovery that they make is really popular. Discovery apple juice is is really nice, simple, approachable, and they do a bottle cider called Discovery. And they also do, my favourite cider from them at the moment is called Nightbird, and it's a medium cider in a 330ml can. That I love because I can just pull it from the fridge and I've got my I've got my cider. But it's not just a strongbow or a copperberg or whatever. It has just a little tiny bit of funk and nuance and tannin. But on its surface, it's a sweet, sparkling cider. It's not wine. By saying cider is wine, you are dismissing that Nightingale's product. You are dismissing the traditional farmhouse product. And only saying that what this new wave are doing, putting it in 750 milliliter bottles and selling it to nice restaurants or pubs, you're championing a niche product and telling people this is the real stuff, this is the good stuff. And this all comes back into what I was saying. This is the mistake that beer made in a different way. I remember writing articles three or four years ago about the winification of beer and how so many people were against it. And I was like, no, this is happening. We're having Saison in 750ml bottles. I want great must in my beer. I want funky flavours. What I've learned is that beer is a, a widening spectrum of joy. And you can pull whatever you want from it. And if you just want to drink cask bitter, or if you just want to drink big bottles of Saison, or if you just want to drink tall cans of hazy IPA or heavily fruited sours or smoothie beers. Not my thing, but so many people get joy out of it. And that's great. 
And I worry that by pushing a campaign that says cider is wine, you are not acknowledging the joy that can be taken from all of the other great things in cider. The fact is, the majority of people are unaware of what is happening in cider. This all circles round to the start of this. Cider, does it still have an image problem? Yes, largely nothing has changed because what's happening is that this new wave has come out and carved its own ground for itself and it started saying things like cider is wine, inherently adding a snobbish element, dare I say it, a gatekeeping element. And in not engaging with the traditional side of cider, and I am culpable in this, but I'm trying to learn from what I did in beer, we run the risk of making the mistakes that beer made by not embracing tradition. And now look where we are, where the tradition is trying to shut out the modern by making them pay more tax. So I worry, I worry that we've got a bit ahead of ourselves and we need to be measured and ensure that we are thinking about a spectrum of drinkers. You're thinking about the people you could give a nightingale nightbird to who, who like a nice cider, but if you say, well, try this, that's nice. You can go to the orchard, you know, you can talk about the orchard. Getting cider on keg is just as important. Getting rid of ciders with stupid names like Old Rosie with pictures of buxom farmhands and pheasant plucker and all that nonsense, that has to go. I don't care how good they taste. It's just not right. Cider needs to respect itself, and to do that it needs to understand, like I've been trying to with beer, and I still am, that it is a wide spectrum. To the traditionalists who've been doing this for so much longer than I have, I'm sorry, I'm listening, I'm ready to listen. And to the modernists who are excited about what's happening, it's amazing, isn't it? The cider that's coming out is incredible. But we're at the start. We're at the beginning of the journey. We're still on Fellowship of the Ring, disc one, right? We have got a long way to go and lots of challenges, but let's make this easier on ourselves by embracing all aspects of cider into one. Because I worry if it's another five years and I'm like picking up on this podcast after picking up on that article I wrote, that we could still be having this conversation And the most important thing for cider is to remember that cider is cider. Cider is not beer. Cider is not wine. Cider needs to have its own identity. It needs to pull together under one roof and go, this is what cider is. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. And I think it's important to say that this is a thought experiment. I'm just trying to figure this out. This is just a sense of feeling encapsulated and hope it starts discussions. I hope I don't experience the same thing as I did last time. And I get lots of emails saying, what are you doing? You have no right to be doing this. I hope we have lots of positive, positive discussions and enjoy lots of delicious cider. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Pellicle Podcast. I've been Matthew Curtis. And I think the best thing to say now is, we'll sail. We'll sail.